0: And this morning, because these things are so, the things of which we've sung, the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Father, we rejoice this morning for many, many reasons. We rejoice for your kindness. We rejoice for your goodness. We rejoice over the changing of the seasons, the return of springtime. Father, we rejoice over the opportunity to be together with brothers and sisters. And Lord, even as, as they were coming in, as we were coming in this morning, to see the faces of so many people who, who have not been able to be with us for some time. And Lord, we're, we're grateful for all these things And many, many more, but what we are most grateful for this morning, what we are most humbled by, what we give you the greatest praise and response to, is the fact that, thanks to Jesus, there is no condemnation. That when he said, it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. The price was paid, your will was accomplished, the deed was done, Satan was defeated, sin was broken... And glory for all who believe was secured. Father, we don't stand here this morning before you because we are good. We stand here this morning before you because we are yours, through Jesus Christ. Grateful for the gift of forgiveness. Grateful for the security of our salvation. Grateful for the fact that that even now, Father, even this morning, our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard. It has not, your word says, even entered into our, our thoughts all that you have in store for those who are your own. And Father, some days that's what it takes to keep us going, the finish line, looking to Jesus, as was just read, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Father, whether we are in a good season or a hard one, a season of abundance or a season of waiting, Father, whether we came this morning weighed down with various burdens or rejoicing and full of praise, Father, we thank you that it is to the same God, the same King, And to the same Holy Spirit whom we come and whom we seek. And Father, who we believe through something as simple as singing songs of worship and a study in your word. Father, we believe that you do immeasurably more. And that's what we're counting on this morning, Father. Because you are a great God. Jesus is a great Savior. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful teacher. And we invite him now as we always do at this time. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts move in our midst to guide us from truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and most of all, to help us see Jesus. Father, we want to see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word, and we want to see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And when we walk out these doors in a little while, across the street just to continue with fellowship and celebration, Father, we want to leave rejoicing with hope renewed with joy restored with hearts that are full father not because church was good but because jesus is lord and that's why at this time it is him that we seek it is him for whom we listen it is him who we praise and it is in his name that we pray as all god's people say together like they mean it amen amen Amen. you may be seated And while you're taking your seats, as always, we'll dismiss our boys and girls for Children's Church, Um, our five-year-olds up through our second graders, uh, and as they make their way out, I want you at this time, still getting a little bit of echo, Skip, if you can bring that down a little bit, thank you. I want you to take out your Bible, if you have it with you, and I hope you do, and meet me in the book of Esther The Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 1, as this morning we are going to continue this series we've been in for the last couple of months, this series that I have entitled World Changers. However, as as the series continues, our focus changes. As last Sunday we finished our look at the study of God's servant Ruth, and now we are moving into what the Bible tells us about... Esther and I want you to make your way there and we're going to read the passage together or I'm going to read it and ask you to follow along here in just a moment but because this is sort of a transitional Sunday again continuing the theme but changing uh, a little bit of the direction a little bit of the uh, of the details I want to lay some groundwork for us just so you understand where we're going because where the story begins if you don't have context it's a it's a little bit confusing it can be a little bit challenging Uh, to figure out exactly what's going on. So as you continue to make your way to Esther and settle in and do whatever it is you're going to do, I want you to know that as we continue this morning, as I said, this sermon series, which is based on the only two books in the Bible that are named expressly for women, what we're about to do this morning in our our study is we're about to take a 500-year leap forward from roughly 1,000 B.C. to roughly 500 B.C. We're also going to leap not only chronologically 500 years forward, we are going to move from a story set mostly in the land of Israel to a story set entirely in the Persian Empire, which is roughly equivalent to modern-day Iran. That is where this story unfolds. And as we do so, we are moving once again from Ruth, which I told you many, many scholars consider to be among, if not the greatest short story ever written, to another ancient literary masterpiece. In fact, one of the most treasured stories among among the Jewish people in all of the Hebrew Bible, and that is the story of Esther. Now, in terms of where the story of Esther fits in the, the broader scope of Old Testament history, this is a story that unfolds Roughly a hundred years after what is called the Babylonian exile. Now, Now for generations, God's people, though they were his chosen people, they didn't live that way. They rebelled against him. They sinned against him. They worshiped idols. They sacrificed children. They did everything imaginable to run the other way from God. And after centuries of patience and mercy toward them, God dropped the hammer. He sent in the Babylonian empire. The Babylonian army, the most powerful army on the face of the earth, and they came and conquered the land of Judah, they conquered the city of Jerusalem, and and most of those in Jerusalem whom they did not kill, they took captive, they took exile back into Babylon for 70 years. Among that company of exiles were men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, That happened. The exile happened 100 years before the story of Esther. The exile lasted 70 years. At the end of the exile, there was a change in power. The Babylonians fell. The Persians stepped in and took their place. And the Persian king at that time told the Jews, all right, you can go home. You may, if you wish, go back home, resettle, rebuild Jerusalem. That's the story of Nehemiah. That's the story of Esther. But not all the Jews went home. Most of them did, but not all of them did. Some stayed behind in what was now the Persian Empire. And 30 years after that opportunity to return home is when this story takes place. And among those Jews who chose to stay, who did not return to the land of Israel for whatever reason, was a young woman by the name of Esther and her uncle by the name of Mordecai. Now, as with the study of Ruth, the book of Ruth, The overarching theme of the the book of Esther is God's providential, God's sovereign authority over and orchestration of everything. Everything on planet earth is under the authority of God. And that is the overarching theme, the providential authority power and orchestration of god but also remember ruth was a story of twin themes and the twin themes apply here that while god is sovereign god is providential god is large and in charge of absolutely everything he gets stuff done through his people god changes the world through the actions and the choices and the decisions of his people it's through people that god changes the world That much Ruth and Esther have in common, but in a sense, that's where the similarities end. Because I'm just going to give you a real quick comparison contrast. You don't need to write this down, but it's kind of interesting. We're not going to put it on the screen, so you're going to have to keep up. But here's what I I want you to take note of, because I think this is fascinating, and I think there's a lesson in it, a lesson in that, that God can work in and use, and in fact does, people of all kinds. Because while in the book of Ruth, it is a story set, as we now know, primarily In a a scene, in an environment of extreme poverty and need. The story of Esther is a story that unfolds in a context of unmatched abundance. We'll see that this morning. The story of Ruth, as I said earlier, is set almost exclusively in Israel. The story of Esther, not a word of it, not a moment of it, is set in Israel. It's all set somewhere else. The story of Ruth is the story of one man's family, Elimelech. The story of Esther is the story of one man's empire, that is, King Ahasuerus, who we're going to talk about this morning. The story of Ruth is a story, really, the drama is initiated by an incidence of widowhood, of some women who lost their husbands, while the story of Esther, on the other hand, is a story that really gains traction around the event of a marriage. Ruth's story is a story of a descent into poverty. Esther's story is a story of an ascent into royalty. Ruth opens with a famine. Esther opens with a feast. Ruth is a story among whom all the characters, and again, if you've been with us, you know this by now, all of the primary characters in the story show themselves, though far from perfect, to be men and women of great integrity who did God's work God's way almost all of the time. While on the other hand, and this is going to be fun as we go through the story to see, even the hero and heroine, the chief heroes of the story of Esther, are people of questionable morality at best. They all do things that we would say, I'm not sure they should have done that. But they do it anyway. Ruth is the story of a Gentile who marries a Jew. Esther is the story of a Jew who married a Gentile. Ruth's is a story that occurs almost entirely in anonymity. We came back to that theme again and again. God's work in one ordinary, otherwise unnoteworthy family. But but Esther's story is a story that occurred very publicly. In fact, it, it occurred on the grandest, greatest, most visible stage on the face of the earth at that particular moment in time. But the most striking And the most significant distinction between these two stories is this. And this is something we will talk about often as we go through the book of Esther, or at least we'll touch on. And it is this, that while in the story of Ruth, God is all over the place. There are references to God. There are declarations toward God. God's name is not unfamiliar in the book of Ruth. In the book of Esther, the name of God appears not even once. There's not a reference to God. There is not a a passing acknowledgement of God. His name, his activity, his presence is not acknowledged in any way. And it is the only book in the Bible with that distinction. A book where God never, at least on the page, the words on the page, appears. Furthermore, where we're going to begin this morning, Esther herself doesn't even appear. The story is about her. It is named for her. But she doesn't show up in chapter 1 either. Instead... What we are about to be told in Esther chapter 1 is the story of a king. Now my translation of the New Testament, this may be helpful. I don't want you to be confused right from the very start. My translation of the scriptures call him King Ahasuerus. That is the Hebrew name that he was known by. If you're reading from another English translation, he's referred to as King Xerxes. That's the Greek uh, way of referring to him. Mine says Ahasuerus, so that's what we're going with. And we're going to talk about this king, whatever his name happened to be, Because it is his actions, it is his choices, his behavior in this chapter, though he doesn't know it, that set the stage for Esther and the world-changing work God was going to do through her. So I'm going to begin reading this morning with all of that by way of introduction. I'm going to begin reading in Esther 1, verse 1. I'm going to read all of this chapter down through verse 22, so I encourage you to Take another drink of coffee and follow along as I begin reading where it says now, Esther one. It took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. For all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence, and he displayed the riches of his royal glory, and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of... Fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, yes I practiced, the Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the princes and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another more worthy than she. When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes. (laughs) No kidding. And the king did as Memucan proposed, so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Now, as I suggested a moment ago, at this particular moment in time, Ahasuerus was the most powerful man on the planet. There was no more powerful kingdom that we know of. Others may have been on the rise. And it really is an awe-inspiring picture of him that we're given in the first few verses of this chapter, speaking of his wealth and his dominion, even his generosity for 180 days would seem to be a king, to be someone who, at least as I said at that point in time, would have had no equal. But what we're also going to see this morning is that, be that as it may, King Ahasuerus was also the king of fools. King Ahasuerus, despite all that was going for him, was the king of fools. And what I want to do in the time we have left is show you why I believe that is so. And then, as always, take a few moments to see exactly what we as believers in Jesus Christ today might be able to take from it. So here goes number one. The first reason that King Ahasuerus was, in fact, the king of fools is because in verses one through nine, he was a man who mistook, listen, extravagance for significance. He mistook extravagance for significance. You know, if you read the story of John the Baptist in the New Testament, and you pay attention to his preaching, remember John the Baptist, his job was to prepare Israel, the people of Israel, for for the coming of the Messiah. And his message was one word, repent, right? Change your ways, confess your sins. Now, if you read the preaching of John the Baptist closely, you see that his most fervent warnings and his most pointed words of of judgment, his calls to repentance, were toward anyone who would presume to build their life around wealth and material possessions. Now, God is not anti-wealth and material possessions, but he said, those of you who are finding your security, your joy, your satisfaction in it, if your life is defined by your possessions, you, John said, are on the wrong track. And after him, Jesus was equally clear. Luke 12, 15, beware. And be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And, and I submit to you that here in verses one through nine, King Ahasuerus shows us why, because what's described in these nine verses is essentially a six month kegger uh, for everyone who was anyone in the empire. In fact, if one source says that the Hebrew term, it says he threw a banquet. Where is that? In verse 3, he gave a banquet. That, that that Hebrew term literally means drinking contest. A six-month drinking contest is what this was all about. And you can only imagine what other debauchery and depravity a six-month drinking contest in the king's palace must have led to. And while scholars believe that the, the occasion for this gathering was because Because Ahasuerus was calling together all these princes and generals and military men because he was planning an invasion of Greece, an invasion, by the way, that was a disastrous failure. The idea is they planned by day and and they partied all night. And the intent of the author of Esther, whoever he or she may have been, is to show us that this was a man whose extravagance was a veiled cry for significance. Verses 4 and 5, he displayed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, he had another seven-day party for all the people from the greatest to the least there in his castle, there in his courtyard to to show all of these things off. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels. It's believed those golden vessels had been stolen from Solomon's temple. And now they were being used by this pagan king. And the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the message of verse 8 is basically everybody got to drink as much as he wanted to. And there were no rules to be followed. In other words, I'm saying to you, this is a guy trying really hard to be liked. Really, really hard to be liked. He has mistaken extravagance for significance. Unless anybody thinks that's just my spin, I want to show you a second thing in verses 10 through 12. That suggest this man was the king of fools. Number one, he mistook extravagance for significance. Number two, he then mistook status for honor. He falsely equated status with honor. Now, when verses ten and eleven say, "Look at your Bible again." Verse ten that on the seventh day, when the literal meaning is when the king was good and drunk, he commanded seven of his eunuchs who served in his presence. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. That basically means what you're thinking it means. And as David Firth writes, to King Ahasuerus, the reason why was this. Because Vashti was, quote, not someone as a wife to be honored and loved. But merely the most attractive of his possessions to display. As one more object that might bring him prestige because he has captured such a beauty for himself and and frankly if what he demanded wasn't so vile if what he was asking her wasn't so repugnant and wrong what followed would almost be and i can't help but wonder if the author of esther had this in mind it's almost comical when verse 12 says but look at your bible but queen vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by these seven eunuchs he sent to deliver the message and i want you to think about that here's why i say that's that's borderline comical because here we're looking at a man we're looking at a king who reigned over what did it say 127 provinces in, in, in the modern day, it would be that his kingdom went from modern-day Pakistan all the way through the Middle East, all the way across North Africa as well. He reigned over 127 provinces. He was a man with the resources to throw a six-month party at which nothing ran out, and then do seven more days of even more partying after that. This is a man who, due to his status, was used to always and immediately getting exactly what he wanted. All the time. He was never told no. And yet, he can't get his own wife to come to the party. He can't make her show up and do what he wanted her to do. Despite almost surely knowing what it would cost her, Queen Vashti simply said no. You may have the status, but I will not honor that request because what you're asking is wrong. What you're saying is wrong. Which in turn exposed even more of King Ahasuerus' foolish character. When his next move in verses 13 to 20 is to turn a domestic dispute into a national emergency. Where the third thing we see about him is not only had he mistaken extravagance for significance and status for honor. He then, in turning to his advisors, was a king who mistook compliance for wisdom. Third thing I want you to see about this king is he is a man who mistook compliance for wisdom. If you've read the book of Proverbs, maybe you know, perhaps you've heard that Proverbs says more than once that it is in an abundance of counselors there is victory. You don't know it all, and neither do I. However, The Bible also teaches, and King Ahasuerus' example shows, that it does depend who your counselors are on whether victory will be assured or not. That's what, as I said, King Ahasuerus' story shows us here because in verses 13 and 14, again, look at your Bible, he summons, now this is seven. He he first of all called these seven eunuchs to go deliver the message to which Vashti says no. Now he calls upon seven other advisors. This is his legal team. And, and he asks them, after assembling them together, a question. In verse 15, he's like, dudes, I do not know what to do about my wife, right? And, and I can't get her to come, and I can't get her to do what I want her to do. So let's talk about the law. What does the law say I ought to do toward my wife because she told me no? Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey my command delivered By the eunuchs. And here's their reply. In the presence of the king and the princes, their leader, Mamukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged. Listen to this. Talk about sycophants. Not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct, here's the problem, king. Word's going to get out. And when it becomes known to all the other women, we're going to have the same headache that you do. Right? They're going to think that they can tell us no, and we're not going to let that happen. It will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying Vashti didn't obey King Ahasuerus, so why should we? And and on this day, from this day forward, the ladies of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And here's the bottom line: there's going to be plenty of contempt and anger. It'll be a real problem. And so here's their counsel. So if it pleases the king, write an executive order and issue it to be written in the laws of Persia and Medea that cannot be repealed. And that was a fact and that will be significant later on in the story. When when a law was made in this kingdom, it could not be repealed. It could not be changed. It could not be revoked. There was no process to undo a bad law. So once it's done, it's done. Issue... An executive order so that cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, when word gets out what you have done is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. That was their counsel. But to paraphrase Romans 1, professing to be wise, they proved all of themselves to be fools Sense A. Here's what I want you to note real quickly. First of all, these guys did not do what the king asked, okay? They didn't have an answer from the law. There wasn't a law they could refer to, so he wanted to know what the law said. The law didn't say anything, so they said, well, why don't we just write a new one? Let's make it up as we go. So first of all, they didn't do what the king asked them to do. Secondly, get this, the punishment they recommended. The punishment they recommended was to forbid her from doing exactly what she just refused to do. Think about it. The king said, come. She said, no, well, we'll fix her. We won't let her come back. We'll keep her away. Not the brightest bulbs in the box. And by suggesting, here's what they didn't realize. By suggesting at the end of verse 19... That the king give her royal position to another more worthy than she, they were unwittingly clearing the way for another queen whom God was going to use to change the world. But yet, mistaking their compliance for wisdom, King Ahasuerus heeded their counsel, through which he, and here's the fourth thing I want you to see, ended up mistaking authority for devotion, or at least equating his authority with people's devotion. Because here's the thing, when verse 20 says, when again the counsel of these legal advisors, remember he sent the seven first guys, the seven eunuchs to deliver the message, these seven advisors now give him this recommendation, which was again to keep Queen Vashti away forever, they said their conclusion, their reasoning was that when the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Now when verse 20 says that, I have drawn a conclusion. That even though the text doesn't say so, these seven dudes were eunuchs too because no husband would ever think that that was going to work. Drop the hammer and she'll fall more madly in love. These guys do not know what they are talking about. Yet, in verse 21, their word pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as was proposed. See, here's the problem. Evidently, not a single one of them understood. And men, this is a lesson for us to take to heart today as well. not the main lesson, but it is an important one. That while you can mandate submission, you cannot manufacture devotion. You can mandate submission. You can raise your voice and stomp your foot and slam a door and rear up and show how tough you are. You can mandate submission, but you cannot manufacture devotion. Devotion is earned by taking the place of a servant. And that's why I suspect that what they were after here, again, that that if we issue this order, if we It will inspire devotion. I suspect it probably did the very reverse. That it did lead, as they were afraid, to plenty of contempt and anger in the kingdom. And and if that's still not enough to convince you that this king was a fool, despite all his wealth, power, authority, and influence, consider one other writer's observation that, quote, At the end of the day, there was no better way of ensuring that all the women did hear about Vashti's actions than by putting it into an official decree and proclaiming it through the kingdom. The very thing they're trying to stop is the very thing they're making happen. Now, what does that have to do, or what does that have to say to us as followers of Jesus Christ today? I want you to turn in your Bible very quickly with me. Five minutes and then we're done to Mark chapter 10. You can leave Esther behind. We will return to her story next Sunday. But I want you to go to Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me share with you, and I think I've probably mentioned this. Maybe you've heard the the statement before, but the great 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody, he once said when he was preaching, he said, you know, the the best way to, to show that a stick is crooked if you're into that sort of thing, I guess. But the best way to show that a stick is crooked is to lay a straight one beside it. Just let the visual speak for itself. The best way to show that something is wrong is to line it up next to whatever is right, okay? The best way to show that a stick is crooked is to lay a straight one beside it. And and while contextually, the, the, the ultimate, the real purpose of the first chapter of Esther is to lay the groundwork, the foundation for all of the rest that was going to follow, all the drama that was going to follow, I do believe there are some ways that this very brief character st- sketch of, of crooked King Ahasuerus can help us in our quest to move toward maturity as followers of Jesus Christ today. Since, by way of contrast, his foolishly, Self-absorbed example, I think there's three things. Three things quickly, and then we're done. Number one, his crooked example, I believe, is an implicit challenge to us to, number one, look out for ways to serve one another. Look out for ways to serve one another. Another, Because Jesus, in referring to the foolish and self-absorbed rulers of his day, in Mark chapter 10, said this to his disciples in verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Literally, Jesus says in verse 43, Not so with you. For whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. In other words, in my kingdom, down is the way up. Servanthood is the pathway to glory. The king's crooked example challenges us implicitly to, rather than drawing attention to ourselves, number one, look out for ways to serve one another. Second, look away from whatever promotes self-exaltation. Look away from anything and everything that promotes self exaltation. Verse 44 Jesus said, For whoever wishes to be first, isn't that what the king wanted? He wanted to be first. He wanted everybody to know he was first. I like to be first, and so do you. He says, Listen, in my kingdom, whoever wishes to be first should become the slave of all. Slave's lower than a servant, slave has no rights. Slave knows it's not about her or him what the world needs today is less of us and more of jesus jesus through us but jesus look out for ways to serve one another look away from whatever promotes self-exaltation and then third finally most importantly there is an implicit challenge here to look up everybody say look up look up toward jesus to find lasting joy Look up toward Jesus to find lasting joy. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And and as was already read for us this morning, it was for the joy set before him that he endured that cross. It was the joy set before him that he died in our place, and in doing so brought many sons and daughters, including you and me, to glory. Look up to Jesus to find lasting joy. And that is why the big idea of this morning's message here at the outset of the study in the story of Esther is it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. The desires of our hearts are met by serving Jesus. The desires of your heart, that's what the king was after. Satisfying the cravings, longing, desires of his heart. Listen, you've got desires of your heart. They will only be met by serving Jesus, by seeking and serving, and treasuring, and walking with him each and every day. Father, Father, we thank you for the many ways you, through your word, teach us and proclaim to us over and over and over again the same simple, singular message, that it is in Jesus that we find life and find it abundantly. Lord, your word tells us that message through direct instruction, through the preaching of the apostles and the prophets who came before us. Your word teaches that through the life and the ministry of Jesus and and, and what he came and did, Lord, and we see in him the the supreme and perfect model of a servant. And Father, sometimes your word teaches us that same lesson by showing us Where the very opposite of it leads. And where all the things that we think define significance. That we think lead to honor. And all the rest. Father, as your word says elsewhere, that's a way that seems right to to us. But in the end, the result is death. And so again, even by a king like this, we can see that, that lasting joy, hope, Peace is only found in serving Jesus. So Father, may serving Jesus be not just the desire, but the conviction of our heart this day and in the seven days to come till we meet again. Father, I pray that you would turn our our attention away from anything that promotes pride and self-exaltation. Father, that you would prompt us to look around at how to be just even the most simple of servants to, to someone around us in need. But most of all, Father, help us to begin and end each and every day by looking up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning and seal them to our hearts. Let all the rest slip away and be forgotten so that we truly leave praising Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.